Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, Ray, how you feeling? You know, when the temperatures drop and we get that winter feeling things, it really affects me more. That's when I get that aching in my bones. But I found that CBD and medicinal together can take care of the majority of my aches and pains. The ones that, you know, you have every day as you age, but also the ones that you get from all those activities of taking care of business in the fall. No kidding. I've been doing a lot of raking because we have so many old trees around our house that you rake one day and then two days later... The yard's filled up with leaves again, so it's Think a Think of it ending. as a workout program. <laughs> it totally is a workout program, but like you, the CBD with the medicinal makes a huge difference in relieving pain and allowing me to function normally. And that's why we're happy to have One CBD as our sponsor here on the podcast. Uh, go to onecbd.com. That's O N E C B D.com. Or follow them on at onecbd life on Twitter. And you can find out about all the aspects of what One CBD does to help you with your pain. One of the things that I like the most, Marcus, is that everything they purchase to be used in their CBD is 100% organically grown hemp free from pesticides and fertilizers, and that's important because it's important to know what you put in your body. I also like the fact that they're third-party lab tested and made in the USA. Because they're third-party lab tested, we know that there is some science backing up and making sure that what they're putting out is high quality and it's made right here in the USA, so jobs are provided. That science it's the science of nanoemulsion. I don't know what it is, but it sounds impressive. And they know what it is, and they know how to take care of business when it comes to your pain. At 1CBD, check them out online at 1CBD.com. O-N-E-C-B-D.com. Achieve a renewed sense of balance. Marcus, this week on the podcast, we want to talk about a woman that you and I both admire greatly, right? Absolutely. She is strong. She is tough. She is pretty nasty when she needs to be. Just like Akron, Ohio, where she's from, right? She's an American girl from Akron, right? Yep. Tough Midwest gal. Talking about Chrissy Hine. We talked about this as we got ready to do the podcast. And I've really come up with the summation, if you will, out of all of our research and digging around. Not to mention learning a ton of stuff. I've come up with the picture in my head 
that she, using the U.S. to U.K. connection, pretty much pulled a Hendrix. She pulled a Jimmy in getting from the U.S. over to the U.K., got herself integrated into the London scene, wrote and recorded her demos that got her signed and got her to get together one of the bands that would become members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Talking about Chrissy Hine and the Pretenders, and after they broke there and became the talk of the town, so to speak, they came home and took on America. It's all about the Pretenders on this episode of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. So you ready to go, Marcus? Ray, this episode is powered by 1CBD, 1CBD.com, and our friends over at Crooked Eye Brewery. Mosey up to the bar and mention imbalanced history and receive a free 10-ounce brew. Well, Marcus, it's a long way from Akron to London, but she made the move. And I learned a lot about Chrissy Hind while doing my research here, including the fact that Chrissy went to Kent State. And she was there for three years going to art school. That all makes sense when you think about it. She was in a band there. And in that band was Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. You know, he would go on to form his own little thing going there in Ohio. And she was also caught up in the whole Kent State massacre thing, which happened May 4th, 1970. Uh, a boyfriend of one of her friends was among the four victims who were killed in that incident. She ends up moving to London in 1973 with her art background and all that, right? Now, with her background, she's able to get a job working in an architecture firm, but leaves after meeting rock journalist Nick Kent, who's become quite a famous person since then, and got herself a job at the magazine NME, the New Music Express. She was always rebellious in heart, and she was always a political activist. I can only imagine how traumatic it must have been to be part of that Kent State massacre and that horrible incident incident that occurred as a college student i can't even imagine what that would be like and how awful that would be to have friends you know shot down as uh, she settles in she further integrates into the scene so to speak in london gets a job at the clothing store sex it's a famous underground clothing store and who's involved there malcolm mclaren so and vivian (laughs) westwood they kind of got this store and she wants to stay in the worst way So much so that she kind of proposed marriage of convenience to not just one, but two members of the Sex Pistols who were around. Of course, Malcolm was their manager. Uh, She just wanted to get a work permit and be married and be able to stay in the UK because she didn't want to come home. Lots of reasons, I guess. And who were those two members of the Sex Pistols that she proposed to to stay? <laughs> I guess that's that's really what happened, right? She proposed yeah. to them. Yeah. Hey, marry me so I can stay over here. It was it was Johnny Rotten. Yep. You're one of your favorite figures in rock and roll, <laughs> mine too. Uh she says that he offered to go to the registry office with her to do the unmentionable, as she put it. Uh, but he backed out and, <laughs> and said, I'll do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh but when they got there to actually do the deed the court was closed for an extended holiday, and uh, then he had his own run-in with the courts, Sid Vicious did, so that kind of made the whole thing moot anyway. Then she went to France, tried to start a band in France, and then ended up back in 75, famously returning home to Ohio, hanging around Cleveland a lot. 
That was about the time like Para Ubu and the Dead Boys were getting getting noticed and making moves and things like it was that. The up roots there. of them and that scene. Yeah. That's After a while, I guess that got old, and she went back to France and tried to form bands, and it wasn't all working out. So she's moving back into London right around as punk rock is uh, forming up and getting ready to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Answers an ad in the Melody Maker. People are auditioning for a band. Now, she didn't get the gig, but it lets you know what you're trying out for when the band ends up being 999, legendary uh, London underground band, right? Now, the next thing, because obviously I've got you right where I want you. You're sitting here like a little slack-jawed on this. She tried to start a group with Mick Jones of The Clash. No, I didn't know that. I got to tell you, I didn't know that. And you're sitting here nodding your head because I don't think you were fully aware of that either. I know I learned that one as we were doing some research, and I was like, look, she really worked hard to try to play with some of these cats. She was right in the middle of it. She really was. And I'm sure being an American and being a woman in a mostly male scene that was dominated by male youth fans, even though the women were big in their role in making the punk rock movement move forward, it was still very misogynistic in band ways. I know, but... but, Not at that point. At that point, it was pretty much all misogynistic. The thing is, Chrissy Hine had the balls to walk into any room with any of those guys and hold her own, and that's what I always liked about her. She was tough like that, and she was not afraid. I mean, you hear songs like uh, Precious and songs like that that kind of show how nasty and tough she is. I like the way you cross the street, because you're precious. Moving through the Cleveland heat house. And we'll talk about her music a little bit later, but the history of the band and how it got together and the... While the scene was developing in London between the punk and the post-punk scenes, it was really, really fascinating. I mean, now another thing that really made my head spin was when I found out because of her association with McLaren that she was uh, kind of moved in as the guitarist in this group that was called Masters of the Backside or something, and she was asked to leave just as they changed their name to The Dam. Now, do you know anything about that or why that happened? I have no idea why that happened. I'd be curious to find out why, and I didn't get a chance to read her autobiography before. I'm sure it goes into it there, but I'm curious as to why she was asked to leave, if it had to do with her being a female, if it had to do with her being American, if it had to do with her style of play. Don't know. Who knows? Chrissy, we'd like to know. Yeah, Chrissy, if you've got any, or if somebody from your camp could send us a note and let us know. Uh, what reasons like those happened, we would love to know. Um, she was also in a band called The Moors Murderers, and she's making connections here. You can tell that she's making connections. She's trying to work with this one, trying to work with that one, and everything's happening around her, but she's getting the idea that she wants to start her own group, and sometimes that's easier thought of than done. Let's put it that way. It's difficult to form a band because you have to find people that are the right chemistry. You have to find people that have the same vision or a similar vision that you can work with as you. And then you have to have playing styles. So I can only imagine being a female trying to start a band in a male-dominated industry at that time was even more challenging, too. And I'm sure that a lot of the songs that were on the demos that she was handing around had that same kind of edge that you see, especially on the first couple Pretenders records. I don't know how you don't get exhausted of trying to be part of and in and around and putting together so many different things and just get exhausted of the whole process. 
And I guess that's part of the passion that drives somebody to, to do what they feel inside them. And she had that drive. And then in the spring of 78, she meets Farndon, Pete Farndon, and they kind of put together the pretenders from there, right? And they found James Honeyman Scott, or Jimmy as everybody called him, and Martin Chambers. And I just I just found the whole the whole story about how they came together and what happens in the next few years, both the amazing, the maudlin, and the sad, uh, to be one of the great rock and roll stories. And it's at a time in my life when I'm a young rock and roll adult and still living the music and loving the music every day as part of, you know, while working another job and raising a kid and all that. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening to these guys and I'm like, they just, for a while there, Marcus, they could do no wrong. Those first two albums in EP were absolutely perfect. And as a young teenager, music like that really, really got your blood pumped and got you excited. And it was relatable music and relatable attitude she was so tough and she was so respected by the young guys that i listened to music with and the young gals that i listened to music with that you know she was kind of an inspiration to many women and one of the many reasons she's in the rock and roll hall of fame deservedly so with her band the pretenders she made a difference in that scene i think what she had was so undeniable once it came into focus she didn't always have the songs that ended up on that debut album. Uh, she didn't always have the Cuban slide. Everything flowed from there, including a lot of the material that would change the, the path of the pretenders through the decades. Some of it uh, really great, some of it not so much, uh, some of it having great commercial success, and again, following her own creative muses and paths that have taken her here, there, and, and everywhere as a band, including, as you mentioned, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2005. She had behind her three excellent musicians in that initial formation of the pretenders farndon's a great bass player and we'll talk about that when we break down some of those songs especially on the early albums james honeyman scott a phenomenal guitar player he played with uh mott the hoople keyboardist verdon allen and martin chambers at the same time for a little that's while that's how they all hooked and, up yeah, right? and a band called cheeks and play with guys at the level of mott the hoople as a young kid means you're pretty good and you've got something they had a really good relationship and a really good chemistry, and they all played really well. Martin Chambers is a fantastic drummer. And she and Martin have carried on and off, and then back on again and off again and on again a couple mm-hmm. times uh, through the decades. But that initial thrust, that feel that uh, they created, that change that they made and what was going on in rock and roll starts to change forever in a strange series of events because just a few days after the band dismissed Pete Farndon for his admitted heroin use, I guess things had gone beyond what you could tolerate in a band, mm-hmm. which is probably more than is tolerated in regular, you know, non-rock and roll society. <laughs> True. But after letting him go, James Honeyman Scott dies just a few days later in June 1982. Now, I learned something about this that I didn't know before. I always thought, 
that Jim died of heroin as well. Finding it ironic that the story of Farndon, the way news traveled, uh, that the story of Farndon being fired by the band for drug use had just barely traveled out, actually hadn't gotten into the press much. And there they are also reporting that J- James Honeyman Scott is dead in what was later revealed was a cocaine overdose, basically. Mm-hmm. Not that long after that, uh, Pete Farndon succumbs to his heroin addiction. Uh, months later, his wife finds him in the tub. Uh, he had overdosed. And there, in that short period of time, two very important parts of her life and the pretender's history were taken away from them. And I don't know how you carry on or or continue after that, but somehow they managed to. And we'll be talking more about that as we go through uh, and talk about the albums uh, in the second half of this episode. It's all about the pretenders here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Look at this, man. We just jumped right into this thing. We're all the way into it, right? I know we are. And we did no messing around. But again, with Chrissy, there is no messing around. (laughs) Well, you know, I want to tell you, early on, I got these guys immediately. And I'll be the first to tell you that um, Brass and Pocket is not even close to being on my favorite list of Pretender songs. I really got into it the first time I heard Mystery Achievement. And then I heard the rest of that first record. And then I read this article in Rolling Stone magazine. Came out May 29th, 1980. You want to guess who the author of this article was? Uh, it was called The Pretenders Ain't Sobbing. Was oh, okay. it? Was as, it as a further hint, Lester Bangs? No. As a further hint, I'll read you the subtitle. Maybe it'll, I should read it in a certain style that'll help you to. The other part is that Chrissy Hind, on her early days as a music critic, being a woman on the road and almost losing her virginity to Ron Wood, which is a great way to get people to read the rest of the article, right? Yep. I'm going to say Hunter S. Thompson. Kurt Loder. Kurt Loder wrote that article? Future MTV guy. He's a good writer, man. He was a good writer. He really painted the picture of this band at this time. It was right after they had come over. They were just playing their first few gigs uh, here in the States, playing at a place called Detroit, which was, I guess, the theme was it was a punk rock place, even though it was in Port Chester, New York. And the scene on the bus where she's just, you know, flipping down her, her leggings and, you know, doing everything she's got to do to get ready to, before they go in to do the show and all the, the time before, right before they go on and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of follows them through. And Dave Hill, who by that point had become their manager, uh, and he helped to put together that demo we talked about that got them mm-hmm. all working together and recording together and, and finding each other in a large part. This is right as it's all taking off. And, and Loader, go find it. I'll post the link on our social media. But it's a really great article. And it tells her story. And it tells all about, um, you know, them becoming this band with this, you know, ballsy chick up front in a world full of guys, you know, drunk on themselves and attitude. Mm-hmm. And it's really a great read. And it got me excited about the band to the next level and also made me think Chrissy Hine, the older woman. She's pretty hot. You know what I'm saying? At that stage in my life, I'm thinking, it's pretty hot. 
Yeah, as young, I thought she was definitely sexy, and she definitely had that charisma on stage. Her charisma was something special, and you saw it in the videos. I know you mentioned Brass and Pocket not being one of your favorite songs. I would concur with that 100%. And Chrissy Hine would concur with that. She didn't even want it on the album, but somebody with the labeler in the pre- in the production process realized that that song had the potential to be a hit, and she wasn't a fan of it, wasn't a fan of the video. She more liked songs like Stop Your Sobbing, um, The Wait, you know, those more punch-you-in-the-mouth songs. Which brings me to um, an issue that I've discovered that I have that I never realized before, Marcus. Sometimes we learn things not only about the music and the people involved in it, but about ourselves. I realized from uh, just listening to all the different records uh, over the years, over the last, wow, long time now, what, 40 years, that um, my real issue when taking any journalistic approach to their music as a reviewer in that regard is that I compare every softer to middle song that she's not crazy about right but i compare every one of them to kid up the neck in private life and i realize that that's patently unfair to her and to those songs the other songs yeah we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording and you figured out doing all of the research and prep for this podcast what it was and that's it was a light bulb that went on over my own head here about you know learning stuff and and it's and I realized that that because I found out a lot of the a lot of the songs from some of the later albums that I wasn't a hundred percent familiar with yeah. just by going through and listening to them a bit you know mm-hmm. so I guess now that we uh, mentioned that we were going to take a break and grab a pint should we take a break grab a pint and then jump back in it am I eligible for the special? I was talking to Paul and Pete, man, and they want to offer a special thank you to all of the listeners of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. What kind of special are you talking about? Everybody likes free beer, Marcus. How about a free 10-ouncer when you go in and mention the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll when you sit down and order your first drink? Free 10-ouncer, yes. Some of the most amazing brews you're going to find at any brewery in the Philadelphia area right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. My favorite of all the Crooked Eye beers is the Black Eye Stout. I love Oh, yeah, you love that. that. Yes, you do. So smooth and just so full of flavor. Jeff manages to get more flavor. And the way he kind of masks the edge on the hops is beautiful. And you can't beat going in, sitting down, saying, hey, I listened to the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. May I please have that free (laughs) 10-ouncer? Free beer. Why not stop in and get a growler, a pint, a crowler? Take some home with you. And don't forget, the entertainment's back. It's coming back in stages. There's more and more stuff going on. And find out what events are back and when they are. It's Crooked Eye Brewery on Facebook. Right in the heart of Hatboro, the cure for what ails you. And a free 10-ouncer. When you mentioned the imbalanced history of rock and roll, and we thank them for their support. Ray and Marcus back on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. This has uh, already been a different kind of journey, man. We're discovering and learning all kinds of stuff about the pretenders and the people who have been part of that whole thing, right? Yeah, and why they are part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think we're all learning a lot about what matters to us during the pandemic. 
Um, I think we're learning a lot about what matters to us and other people and how people really manage to deal with this kind of a thing uh, matters to, I think, to a lot of us. And one of the things I thought, because we were getting for quite some time, uh, especially early on when everybody thought this was going to be over in a couple of weeks, uh, we started to get a lot of what you would call celebrity lockdown situations. And one of the people who posted on social media was Chrissy High. She wanted everybody to know that she was safe at her apartment. She's got a nice place in London, you know, and she's mm-hmm. just hanging out there like everybody else, I guess. I don't know. She didn't mention, I don't think, whether she had cats or a dog or anything. But like initially, like everybody else, we all wanted to make sure that at least until we learned something that we were being safe, right? Absolutely. And it's nice that a lot of these older musicians who are more vulnerable to the worse effects the ba- yes that are more vulnerable to the bad effects of the SARS-CoV-19 virus are home safe and doing what they can because as musicians I think that they've experienced it a little more firsthand and a little more upfront and earlier than most of society has because of their intense traveling and interaction with people yes. and and the way that everybody kind of pretty much licks the mics and you know <laughs> does stuff like it's that and i don't mean that much. literally but figuratively no, but everybody breathes about, on the mics and the trans think the aerosol it. transmission yeah. Yep. yeah think about it right now we're both recording this podcast mm-hmm. in relative proximity to the microphone to make sure that we can re- get a good recording right absolutely i don't know about you i'm about half to a quarter inch with an occasional bump of the mic screen which means i'm within a half inch of my microphone itself me too and and that's where you need to be and that and that's nothing i've seen some of the microphones that come off a stage after like a rock band performs Mm -hmm. you got a singer who's like sweating his ass off or her ass off and at the end of the thing when they take it they swing it they hit it down at the ground is there are rivulets of water coming off that thing, yep. you know, and I think people get it. Yeah. And what Chrissy said, she learned like a lot of us, uh, talking about the pretenders. She said she learned during her lockdown experience that she doesn't, she's not the nicest person sometimes. Like she had like a, like a clear moment about yeah. maybe she, who she is versus who the world really thinks she is or what the world's it's, it's yeah. good that people are feeling things and having the time to sort shit out. And yeah. girlfriend, if you've been sorting shit out, you can call us anytime here on the podcast. Absolutely. And uh, we'll just sort it shit, shit out together with everybody who needs help. Have you ever met Chrissy? Almost. I've met her a couple of times. I was at the uh, Pearl Jam record release party I've talked about before at Dobbs, and she was there, and I was too intimidated to, to, to talk to her. I really was. Yeah. And uh, I was also... Now, wait a minute, I might be wrong. I may, because the night before Live Aid, they played at the Chestnut Cabaret, and uh, I was there, and I think I might have met her there. No, I hear you. I got to meet her twice once when she was at WMMR, and once in like 2004, 2005, when they did the Hall of Fame series down in Atlantic City. And she was standing next to Shirley Manson, and I was with my wife, and I completely froze because I was right in between, pretty much right in between her and Shirley Mance, and I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh my God, these two women are so great at what they do. And also their aura is intimidating as hell. Now the reason you're here, every man and every woman, is to help each other, stand by each other. 
It, I liken it to what might have happened if I ever had met Janis Joplin yeah. when she was alive. It would have been the same thing. Yeah. It would have been like, you, know, you feel it. You uh, uh, yeah. And I'm, and then when I met her at MMR, I made a huge faux pas. I was like, I'd seen you with the police. And she's like, nope, we never toured with the police. And I'm like, oh, it was Iggy Pop in 87. And that was the sh- tour that I had seen her with. And I, I was like, I, I, I blew it. And I was like, that. oh, shit. Uh. And it was the police and the Go-Go's, and I can't believe, and she, because she straight up said after that, I was like, I can't remember who you opened for, and I can't remember it, and I'm embarrassed. And she's like, just so you know, Martin Chambers hated Sting. There was no fucking way we would have ever played with the police. She was tough, and I was totally embarrassed. So that's twice that I've totally done the done the face plant and come up with scrapes all over my melon from right in front of her. And the first time, I just froze. What do you do? I <laughs> totally unrehearsed, like all of my men. You know, she's standing on one side of you. Seriously, she's standing on one side of you, and Shirley Manson standing on the other side of you, and you're just like Ugh. you're putting in the middle. You're like a cup of pudding. A cup of pudding, indeed. And it's funny because I had interviewed Iggy Pop to talk about that stuff, that that show, and his relationship with Chrissy Hine. And he was really cool. And I went up to him and said, hey, my name is Marcus from WMMR. Thanks for the interview. And he was really nice and really cool. And where was this? At one of the uh, hotels or casinos in Atlantic City when they did Uh, a tribute show, I think uh, right before they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, you talk about the guiding forces in the musical universe. In 2005, the Pretenders are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right alongside Seymour Stein, the founder and president and guru of Sire Records, their label. I thought that was kind of cool that they went in together. I mean, before you signed the Pretenders, you'd already established an incredible label, a roster of artists. And for them to join that was great. And then to have the level of success and to go into the Hall of Fame together. And, of course, she had to pay tribute to Jimmy and to Pete, saying, quote, I know that the Pretenders have looked like a tribute band for the last 20 years. And we're paying tribute to James Honeyman, Scott, and Pete Farndon, without whom we wouldn't be here. And on the other hand, without us, they might have been here. But that's the way it works in rock and roll. And I thought it was a great perspective, paying tribute to guys who were gone for Quite a long time at that point, over 20 years. and She's 100% right. Those first two albums are what catapulted them into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's funny you mentioned Precious. I was like 14 years old, 15 years <laughs> old when they did uh, Saturday night concerts on MTV. And she did Precious. And right where, and I'll never forget this, because right where she say, does the part, off, oh, fuck off, she hit a, a vocal pause and paused for an extra two seconds. MTV hit the beep. She went, oh, fuck off, and got it onto cable TV. And she did that. that. 
And it was quite a fuss. Cable had no FCC rules, so it technically wasn't a violation. That shows her attitude and her toughness and what a badass she is as a person. Well, you started to hit on it with talking about those first couple records, and I think you can take the first two records, Pretenders and Pretenders 2, uh, the extended play with the Cuban slide and some of the stuff, the material overlaps, uh, learning to crawl and get close and look at those albums, uh, two before and two after uh, the loss of Jimmy and Pete and see that that's the real core of why they were inducted all these years later and they're still making music. And I got to tell you, I spent some time in the last couple of weeks knowing we were doing this episode, listening to not just the hits, certainly but listening through all the albums, getting reacquainted with some of it. You always want to make sure you know you have a fresh view of things when you're getting ready to talk about something, especially on a podcast like this, right? Absolutely. And But listen, going back and listening to her music is a lot of fun, especially the stuff you don't hear as much. I know that we are mostly ingrained on those first three albums, mainly the first two, but those first three, first four records are the ones that many of us relate and identify with the pretenders to. But right. if you look at her career, it's really a solid career. She's written some really excellent songs. They're beautiful. Yes, Her attitude has changed. Uh, her songwriting has aged with her. She stayed relatable to her fan base in so many ways. And they still yep. bring it live, dude. I've saw her a few times in the last decade. I, I can't remember the last time I saw her. I'd have to actually look at my ticket stubs. But I've seen her a couple of times in the last decade, and they're great still. All right. Instead of four, let's just go with the consensus of those first three albums and the EP. And then after Get Close, you have a four-year break, and then a four-year break, and then a five-year break. You know what I'm saying? Things mm -hmm. The records start to stretch out a little bit. And the material, you know, starts to stretch out a little bit, too. Some of it not as, as strong as things that, you know, you, you, you would say is their trademark sound. But I would say that Hate for Sale, which came out right in the middle of all this, is their best album, her best album, whatever you want to say, in a long time. Even, in my mind, surpassing um, the Alone album, which Dan Auerbach uh, produced, The Buzz, uh, Lightning Man has got a cool reggae rock feel to it, Turf Account and Daddy, songs like that. So she's still making music. And I think it speaks to her fans, even as they're aging along with her. And I like the groove. I like the vibe of it. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the undiscussed component of those early records and get your take on it. And I'm talking about the one and only Chris Thomas. Chris is 73, born in England. He's a guy who was born and bred to this shit. His dad was a... a uh, producer or an engineer at Abbey Road, so he came up around all this stuff. And Chris got to work with some of the most incredible people. We, we the list is long. I'll, I'll give you some of the highlights if you want. After hearing some of his work, he was asked to produce the next Roxy Music album, which means he produced "Love Is the Drug." Okay. Oh. He produced the following tracks by the Sex Pistols, and this is where he starts to play into our story. Anarchy, God Save the Queen, Pretty Vacant, 
Holidays in the Sun. Wow. And he produced those first two, three Pretenders records. He produced Let My Love Open the Door for Pete Townsend on Empty Glass. I remember that. Okay, we're starting to get the idea. He was instrumental in and had a lot to do with the breakout performances of songs like What You Need and Need You Tonight from In Excess. Wow. And in that same time period, he worked with Elton John. He was instrumental from his early days in helping the Climax Blues Band break out. He did engineering work on the White Album that went largely uncredited but is definitely there. He did all these amazing things. What always happens is bands try different things with different music and different approaches and different producers. But when I look at it, the stuff that Chris Thomas had his hand in is their best stuff then and in more recent years. And it's just a note, you know, all about what's going on there in Pretenders Land on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Well, let's talk about the music, Marcus, because that debut album from the Pretenders uh, really stirred up some shit on both sides of the pond, I would say. (laughs) Made a lot of noise in college radio, that's for sure. And got them established on American Rock Radio at first before crossing over to pop radio with Brass and Pocket. I remember seeing that video as a young kid and being hooked by them. It wasn't the first song that I saw. It was the first video that I saw of theirs. I think uh, Precious was the first song that I had ever heard. An older brother or sister of a friend <laughs> played it for us. And you heard her talking like that in that yeah. song. You went, yes, oh, the phone call. It's just more nastiness, grinding right all yeah. the way up to up the neck and tattooed love boys. One, two, three. We're off and running, Mom. Yeah. And then Space Invader, The Weight, The Kinks cover, the very last song on side one, Stop Your Sobbing. Yeah, in the vinyl days, there were sides one and two. Do you think that that was uh, kind of a, a reach out to Ray Davies, who she always said she loved his music, because a few years later, she and Ray would end up together and have a child and be married and divorced? No, they were never married. They, they had a kid together, split up, and then she ended up with Jim Kerr right after that. And they were married for a while. Yeah. And they had a shortly child. After, yeah, shortly they did. And shortly after their breakup, a bunch of us ended up with him in a restaurant in Philadelphia right after that time with around a Simple Minds performance. And then the other songs on side two, it's not like side two changes into something really, you know, different. It's Kid in Private Life and then Brass in Pocket and Mystery Achievement. But you look at that record and then, you know, the, the Cuban slide was part of uh, B-Side in England, right? Yes. Talk of the Town, you know, yeah. Talk of the Town, which they were at that point in London, by the way. Yeah. And so they come to the States and they put that out on an EP while they're getting the next record ready to go. They're loading up for uh, album number two, you know? Yeah. Oh, what a doozy of an album as well. It didn't get as high a marks as their first album, but it's still a hell of a doozy of an album. 
And a doozy, eh? It is a doozy, and it shows the chemistry of the band and how they grew during that short time period, but boy. Well, look at the way they start the record. She starts out sultry and hot with the adulteress, and she sells it, man. She brings that sucker home. Oh, Bad yeah. boys get spanked, which every guy I know that followed the pretenders was looking for a spanking from Miss Chrissy Hine at that point, so that sounded <laughs> good. And message of love, and you know, you got talk of the town on there, and the rest of the record is just filled with all this good rocking energy, really good songs, yeah. most of them written by her, a little bit with Jim. And, you know, you're listening and as a fan and you're going, these guys can't do anything wrong right now. They just made two amazing records. And by the way, they managed to wedge in this really hot EP into the middle. I never bought EPs. You remember the video for Day After Day when they were playing a festival in like Japan or somewhere, a big show in Japan, and it just showed Vaguely, life on the road? I remember that video to this day, and Day After Day is still one of my favorite, favorite Pretender songs. There are some that definitely stand out more than others, uh, but I think it's a phase thing because there are periods where I like Message of Love so much, and then there are time periods where it's like Mystery Achievement, which I spiked in last weekend. That bass line from uh, that bass group from Pete Farndon right at the beginning is just so good. And this is where the rock and roll tragedy and the fates and all that shit mixes up with what's going on with the pretenders. Because right around that time, look, look at how good you're talking about, how you feel about about the music and everything, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how that's in general how things are going for them. And then you get to this point, and then you lose one and then a second member to different kind of drug problems, and you find yourself going forward. Not knowing, I'm sure, at one point what she was going to do, but her and Martin decided they had a really great band. And if they could somehow move forward, that they should. They go through the whole process, and they settle on Malcolm Foster on bass and Robbie McIntosh, who's got quite a storied you know, career in and of his, himself, right? Yeah, he played with uh, Paul McCartney in the Wings, if I'm not mistaken. Indeed. And that was like his biggest gig until he got in there. And he's he's played with all kinds of people through his career. He was also the main guitarist on Daltrey's Under a Raging Moon. Chrissy and this band was really connected with their predecessors because they took what their predecessors did and punked it out and still made it and kept it very cool and very good. And if you look at that album, also Billy Bremer... Bremner played uh, lead guitar on a bunch of the stuff before uh, Robbie McIntosh joined the band. Tony right. Butler played bass on some of the recordings before Malcolm Foster joined the band. Paul Carrick donated some, not donated, but played some piano and did some vocals. You have to use the finger quotes on donated. That's all. <laughs> donated. Okay, here we go. Let me finger quote those on the video. Donated, quote, quote. But some big names like that to play on the album and help pick up the slack while they're trying to figure out what they're doing. And it is a nice album. I like this it's album. It's a really lot. good album. Man. It opens really? with mi Middle of the Road, and then you have Back on the Chain Gang, which were the well, two. And think about the feels there, right? You have mm -hmm. Middle of the Road, which is down and dirty. You know, mm -hmm. uh, this is the... Uh, the title kind of says, you know, we're gonna we're gonna learn to crawl because we gotta mm. we've, we're we're crawling from the wreckage essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and you come out with and you come out with that drum beat from Martin, right? Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Time the Avengers a great song Ooh. as well. That great song riff. smokes. Watching the clothes, a nice deep cut from the album. 
Show Me's a beautiful song. Thumbelina, yes. a little different, but still fits in with the uh, album perfectly. And then My City Was Gone, her uh, her homage to Ohio and Akron. And it's the lyrics in that are some of her best writing. Further down the line, a little bit as part of that whole thing, they do 2,000 Miles, her, her Ode to Jimmy. Yeah which has become a perennial Christmas classic on most rock stations around the world, pretty much, I'd say. Yeah, we spiked that one in quite a bit during the Christmas season as well, and it's always wonderful to play that song. They survived the tragedy, and they were able to move forward. I'm sure it was challenging, but they did it. And she keeps going, making new music. Like I said, Hate for Sale's got a lot of great songs on it, and a lot of the work she did with uh, Dan on Alone was good, but... Uh, along the way, you had, again, long gaps, eight years between albums there, six years, you know, and, and it, it becomes less important. I know there's a solo album I'm not talking about somewhere in there, too. Chrissy is a person, and I don't know where Martin is in the in the scheme of the blue marble, <laughs> but you're out here and you're at that stage in your life, and, and a lot of people are dealing with this right now. When you're in your 60s or late 60s or 70s or even beyond that, and that's where a lot of the rock and roll generation is, folks. Uh, we get that. And I'm looking at it and I'm sitting there and thinking like, what a fucked up deal to get stuck with that you've worked your whole life. You've done everything, quote unquote, because I like to use the quote unquote, uh, the right way, you've done everything the right way, trying to uh, do the, live life the right way and live with the right ideals. And you get down to it and some people with the poor judge of science basically caused this thing to go crazy in our country and in our world. And so we find ourselves, they sit, they find themselves now, like Chrissy is, uh, you know, in London, able to move around a little bit now, but then, you know, restrictions keep coming and going because of what the ongoing pandemic has brought to our doorstep all around the world. This is something we're all in together, so... That's true. And I'm glad that they stayed healthy and hopefully she'll be able to tour a little bit after the pandemic is over and we're able to get back into live music whenever that'll be. But I know some of these musicians are getting older and older and it's going to get harder for them. So we don't know if we're going to get tours from them. One of the things I thought uh, in the last week or so, as I contemplate all this crap in my head, all <laughs> this is where the imbalance part of our, our, our brotherhood comes from. All I keep thinking is of the bands that were planning to tour or announce a tour who aren't going to, and the people who had tours on the books and on sale that won't be coming to complete them. And the ones that will never get announced, it's really the kind of a scope of a thing that we won't be able to put our fingers on probably for a year or two, maybe three down the line, because you have to do it comparatively to numbers of uh, concerts and touring, et cetera, now versus then versus the original, you know, before 2019, et cetera. Everything's being reset. And the way things get done, musicians and what they can do to help in the world is being reset. So we're we're trying to reset a little bit here and trying to make it fun as we always do, because our motto is hashtag more fun in 2021 (laughs) trademark that fucking thing mark i know we need to trademark that baby but (laughs) the one positive thing that could come out of the pandemic musically is that we could get some incredible songs by these songwriters they're going to be practicing they're going to be doing stuff and recording stuff in their home studios or nearby in their small circles so the potential for some really amazing music is so great because of this these songwriters are not able to do what they love to do and it may inspire them in so many ways in this match
matter, Marcus, you and I are 100% in accord. Because <laughs> I really think that there's that's the A part of the equation. That a lot of good stuff's already been going on. We know that people who already had planned to be out were working on stuff. People like Guns N' Roses say, right? Mm -hmm. Everything went on the shelf. They've got more time to finish a record. ACDC yeah. ready to release a new record. Yeah. By the time they're all doing tours again, some will, they'll some be ready will. to go, you know, if they feel like it or not, right? Absolutely. But they'll be rested. There's no doubt that people are writing, they're collaborating. The internet and uh, digital technology are allowing people to collaborate. Look at us. We're on Skype recording today's episode at your yeah. house, my house, yours <laughs> for Jeff the Soul Kitchen and the Magic Bag Studio. That's right, man. Combined <laughs> super friend forces, dude. Yep. Um, the way we look at it is, is that we we're just doing our part to try to make a little fun and have a little fun and explore rock and roll together, while we all and you all deal with. Uh, something that we don't know what's going on all the time. Don't be too scared. We're going to get through as long as we all stick together. That's one thing I'm sure of. That is true. And the reality is, is we're all going to have to live with COVID-19 for the rest of our lives. It's something that's not going away as of this point. So now we have to figure out how to live with it smartly, avoid it as, at all costs. As we know, people like Maynard being impacted by it probably yes. won't be able to sing live for many more maybe months. Ever. And maybe, maybe ever. ever because of the damage he's, that COVID's done recovered. to his lungs. He's quote unquote, see, I keep using the finger quotes, but he's already, by the doctor's estimates, recovered. And he said, no, man, I still got problems. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, they're not talking about that a lot. Yep. And uh, Maynard is one of those people who can make make a lot of noise about that. And I hope that he continues to keep us updated on his condition. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast, all about the pretenders. And you know what we didn't get into is all the different people who've been into the in the band through the years. I know we're into family trees, but it's a lot. Man. It I really was is. I was looking at it and how many people are on this chart of bands because they have the current band line up there and then they have additional personnel and there's this yeah. big chart of all these different people who played in, with the pretenders either on the road or on records and when they were in there and all that kind of stuff. I can tell you one of the people, just to give you an idea, Blair Cunningham is an American drummer who played with people like Echo and the Bunnymen. He played with Haircut 100. Uh, he played with Paul McCartney a little bit, Sade he did a little bit of banging sticks with, so they've had some very interesting uh, personnel jump in over the years. Bernie Worrell played on the uh, yeah, I saw on that. the Get Close record. Johnny Marr. Tommy Mandel. So, Adam yeah. Seymour, yeah, lots of people. Um, yeah, so they've had some pretty incredible musicians, so it shows you the respect that Chrissy and Martin have achieved and obtained over the decades for their music, for their songwriting, for their attitude, and for everything that's rock and roll. So a very impressive group of musicians that they have played with over the decades. Well, time to take it out of fifth gear, Marcus, and kind of <laughs> ease off the throttle, put it in the barn, and get ready for our next episode here on the uh, podcast. So much fun. Uh, don't forget to reach out and touch us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Always a good way to find us or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find us on there. Just search us if you don't know us. Find us there or our website, which is the center of the universe for us, really. Uh, it's imbalancehistory.com. 
Coop.com. Well, it's time to go, bro. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. Thanks to Chrissy Hine and the Pretenders for so much to talk about on this episode of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll.